Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. I hate to tell you this, but you were born into a battle. You didn't ask for this battle, but when you were born on earth, you were born into a cosmic battle. Now the devil is real. There is a demonic, personal, evil power permeating the world. He hates you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your career. He wants to destroy your finances. He wants to destroy your life. Scripture describes the devil uh, carefully and Jesus believed in him, referred to him, spoke to him. The apostles believed in him, obviously. Satan often uses you as a pawn to get at God. Eighty-four. Eighty-four. I know this is the time I normally welcome everybody um, to our church, and I let everybody know that I'm glad that they're here. Um, and I usually have something funny that I try to say, or an icebreaker, you know, or a conversational start, starter, or something to say to warm everybody up. But uh, today's going to be different. Um, I'm I'm absolutely glad that you're here. Um, I want you to understand that I am very glad that you were here. Uh, but I have nothing funny to say today. I don't have anything cute to talk about the weather. I don't have any funny stories to relate to you. I don't even have a, a word to make you smile. Uh, and the reason for that is, is very simple. 84. You see, there were 84 people who were killed Thursday in Nice, France. 84 innocent victims that lost their lives with over 100 more injured, 50 of which are questionable if they'll actually survive. Of those, there were 10 children, 10 children of the 84 that were murdered Thursday night when a terrorist took a truck and he plowed it into a crowd of thousands of people who were gathered along a seaside uh, promenade in Nice, France. As they gathered to watch the city's Bastille Day fireworks show, the, di- the driver was a 31-year-old man from Tunisia, um, he left a, a mile-long swath of carnage along the seaside walkway uh, before the, uh, he kept going until the police actually uh, shot and killed him. Eighty-four innocent people, including ten children, as well as a father and a son from Texas, were murdered in this vicious, heartless terrorist attack. That's why I don't have anything funny to say. That's why... They, things are not so normal this morning because my heart is broken for so much loss. Okay. My heart is heavy with grief for the families who went through this. Okay. I'm still actually in shock of how inventive people can be in ways that they devise to hurt other people. And my heart is filled with anger and rage and sheer frustration. And not just for the terrorists and their organizations, that that, as they continue to commit these atrocities, I have anger for them for sure, but my deepest anger burns because of a culture that promotes the worldview that denies the existence of evil. A culture that denies that we live in a broken world filled with broken people. A culture that denies that there is a real enemy and he's bent on the destruction of God's creation. A culture that will look at this And we'll simply say, this is just a result of a clash between other cultures. This is simply the result of socioeconomic unfairness. They will say that this is simply a lack of economic opportunity. That this is the result of Western nations oppressing other nations. A culture that will look at this out of context and they will forget about Orlando. And they will forget about Dallas. And they will forget about San Bernardino. And they will forget about Baton Rouge, Louisiana this morning. A culture that fails to see the connection between this and Istanbul and Brussels and Jerusalem and Paris and New York City from 2001. A culture that refuses to see the common thread between this and the beheadings of innocents, particularly Christians and Westerners. A culture that denies any connection between this and honor killings. 
Okay? And the, the violent subjugation of anyone who does not profess a particular God in some guise is messenger. A culture that refuses to acknowledge that, 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 that this right here, that there's no connection between the systematic torture and rape and women of children by monstrous terrorists in their organizations. A culture that ignores the fact that this problem is actually even bigger than this. A culture that doesn't see the underlying connection between these atrocities and the fact that Russia, Russia is now on the verge of, of outlawing evangelism outside of a church. The legislation is already set. It's already been passed. It's just waiting for the signature from, from Vladimir Putin that makes it illegal for individuals to talk about their faith outside of a church, including in their own homes in Russia. Or how about the fact that here in America, there's a new culture that has emerged promoting the limits, you know, to things like free speech, right? And the, fr the freedom of religion. And in this pseudo-intellectual, enlightened culture, there are those who are calling, you know, for the end of hate speech in a church, which is just a code word for not allowing pastors to teach what the Bible says about sin being sin. This new enlightened culture, okay, in this culture, there are those who, in the name of tolerance, will intolerantly mock those of us who profess a genuine faith in a resurrected Savior. And those same people will look at us and tell us this is our fault, that this is our doing. Somehow we're at fault for this, that we're responsible for this, and that we're just simply stupid and ignorant and superstitious for b believing that, that evil is real, that real evil exists in the world, that we're foolish to think and believe that there is a real enemy who has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And it, it infuriates me. It upsets me. It angers me to see so many people who are staring evil right in the face and are willfully blind and ignorant all the while looking down their noses at those who believe that our enemy is real. It infuriates me because, let me just tell you, your enemy, Satan, he is real. And he's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And Thursday night, he devoured the lives of 84 innocent people. He devoured the hearts of families and friends, and he continues to devour the sense of safety and peace in Nice, in Istanbul, in Baton Rouge, and in Europe, and even across America. And make no mistake about it, he is not yet finished. That's why we're going to continue in our series titled Know Your Enemy, because the enemy is real. As we said last week, he is actively hunting you. He's hunting your family. He's hunting your friends. And everyone you've ever cared about in your entire life, Satan wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to, like he did those, those 84 people. He wants to destroy your relationships. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy your health. He wants to destroy your finances. And most importantly, he wants to destroy your eternity and those in the eternity of everyone you have ever cared about in your life. That's what he wants. Last week, we jumped in and we tackled... You know, this myth right here that's promoted by our culture and not even just our culture, but people inside the church, this myth that frustrates me so much because it's so dangerous. The myth that denies that Satan even exists. Okay. There's so many people who, who are so willing, including people who call themselves Christians, who say they follow Jesus, that they're willing to go along with this idea that Satan is just some literary figure that was created to help it to explain evil in this world. But as we pointed out last week, that's just bogus. Because we can know for sure, without a reasonable doubt, that the enemy exists. And the reason why we know, besides the fact of all this destruction and hurt and pain, is the fact that the Bible claims that, that he is real. The Bible makes it very clear that he is a real personality. In addition to that, all the apostles and the New Testament's authors claim that he's real. But most importantly, Jesus, God in the flesh, said that Satan is real. So you can say what you want to say about philosophy. You can say what you want to say um, about literary creations. You can say about what you want to say about superstitious ancient cultures and their fables. But that doesn't change the fact that Jesus himself, God in the flesh, the creator of all things, spoke about Satan, spoke directly to Satan, 
as we talked about last week, pronounced judgment on Satan and has promised his final punishment. If Jesus says he's real, if God himself says he's real, the fact is he's real. And to deny that he's real is just to be willfully ignorant. And worse, to be downright dishonest with ourselves. Now, the second myth that we tackled about Satan is actually the opposite idea. You see, there's some who believe that Satan is real, but for some, some reason he is actually the equal counterpart or the equal counterbalance to Jesus. That somehow Jesus and Satan are equally matched. And this is actually an ancient perspective because the Persian idea of Satan was that, you know, God and, and, and the devil were, were equally, you know, kind of created. Right? That, that, that God is light and Satan is dark and, and they both exist in a balance with each other and they can't either, neither one can overcome each other. But as we talked about, that's not how it is. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the creator of all things, which means he is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is ever-present, whereas Satan is a created being. He's part of creation, which means he has limited power. Yes, he's powerful, but he's not all-powerful. And though he may be wise, and though he may be intelligent, he is not all-knowing. And though he is a spiritual being, he is not ever-present, which means he is absolutely no match for Christ. And what is more, he has already been defeated. The war has actually already been won. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins and rose from the grave, giving us the ability to have eternal life. And no matter what the enemy does to us, he cannot take that away. Satan has been defeated Satan's judgment has been pronounced and his fate has been sealed. All he can do now is to seek to destroy as much of creation as he possibly can and take as many people with him to hell. And here's the thing. As a Christ follower, we're not helpless victims. Okay? We're not helpless victims Though he may attack us, though he may use people around us to try to hurt us, we are not helpless, defenseless victims. We have the ability to fight back. In fact, John Piper um, in a sermon noted that the devil cannot devour Christians. He cannot swallow them up and take them to hell. He cannot devour their their eternity. I mean, he might be able to physically hurt us. He might be able to, to break our hearts through other people, but he cannot devour us and take away our eternity. And the reason... John Piper says, is that Christians, people who actually follow and know Jesus, those people fight back. See, if you've been saved and you know who has your back and you firmly are trusting God for your eternity, you will fight back because that's what Christians do. We don't cower down when, when he prowls around. We don't run for cover when the enemy shows his face. No, we stand our ground and we fight back. We resist him. We fight him. We take the fight to him. That's what VBS is about. Is us taking the fight to the enemy. And that's one of the goals of this series. Is to help you and help me stand our ground and resist and fight the enemy. To stand our ground and defend ourselves. And as we said in week one, the ways that we do that, the way we learn to fight the enemy is we learn to know our enemy. We want to know our enemy. And so last week we focused on who the enemy isn't. Okay, we talked about who he is not. He isn't a figment of our imaginations. He is not either. Jesus is equal. He's somewhere in between. Okay? He's real, but he's not all powerful. Now this week I want to... for. I want to to take some time this morning and learn about who he actually is. I want to actually answer the questions. Who is the devil? Where did he come from? What are his powers? Right? We're going to explore what made the devil the devil. Because as Herbert Lockyer says, God did not create him a devil. The devil made himself a devil. Well, how did he do that? What was his motivation for that? Why does he do what he does? What's the driving force that this fallen angel is on this suicide mission of destruction? Okay. What's his plan? What's his end game? Well, what, what, how does he intend to destroy God's creation? These are the kind of things that we're going to look at this week. But in, in, in weeks to come, we're going to actually talk about how to effectively do battle with our enemy. And we're going to look at the difficult question. And the difficult question so many people ask is, why does God even allow the devil to live? And why hasn't he stopped him yet? It's a big, important question. We're, we're going to get to that. You're not going to want to miss any of the rest of this series. But today, let's begin right from the beginning and answer the question, where did the devil come from? So Genesis 1, verse 1, it reads, 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this might really seem like a simplistic verse to use to begin our conversation, but, but there are a lot of things in this verse right here that we tend to overlook. You see, the beginning that's spoken of here is actually the beginning of all things besides God. Okay. Because before the beginning, <laughs> into eternity past, there was only God. God existed within himself, the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He was completely alone. There was nothing else. 100% complete, 100% fulfilled, 100% at, field, uh, at, uh, um, at peace, 100% living in fellowship with himself in the Trinity. God had no need. He was complete. There was nothing else. There was no universe for material beings to exist in. There was no um, heaven for spiritual beings to exist in. There were no angels. There was nothing. There was only God. And then in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the term heavens here is actually plural because it describes a multifaceted reality. Because the Hebrew word for heaven could simply just be sky. Or it could be the space beyond the sky. And then it was also the spiritual realm for all created spiritual beings. And it's also the location of God's throne. His throne room was in heaven. Now this is important because sometimes in our culture influenced theology, we imagine heaven to be this eternal place, right? That's always existed where God actually like physically lives, right? But that's not what heaven is. Heaven is a created place where God's throne is, where his throne room is there. And this is a place where God interacts with the spiritual world, but God is infinitely bigger and more than heaven. Heaven is not a space bigger than God in which God lives. God is infinitely bigger than heaven. In fact, we read in 1 Kings 8.27, But God will... But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. God is bigger than heaven. He created this space. Heaven's a created space where spiritual beings exist. This is the space where God, being spirit, he interacts with spiritual beings that he created. And in this space, these beings that inhabit this space were created in the beginning. That means Satan was created in the beginning. Now you ask, well, it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Does it mean that heavens and the universe were created simultaneously? Well, not necessarily. Because we read in the book of Job chapter 38, when God asks of Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined the measurements? Surely you know. Or or who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, which are angels, shouted for joy. You see, the Bible seems to indicate that when the material universe was created, when the the earth was created, angels already existed and were shouting for joy when God created the material world. Which means heaven was created and the material world was created after. Notice the order. God created the heavens and the earth. Now, you might ask, well, how much time did it take between the creation of one and then the other? I don't know. It, it, it doesn't say. Okay? It, it just says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't say how long the process took. Okay? It didn't say that in the beginning, God created the heavens, and five minutes later, or five days later, or 5,000 years later, that he created the earth. It doesn't specify. Okay? When you read the rest of Genesis, you'll actually notice that it talks about creation. Okay? of the material world, but the Bible doesn't really actually describe the creation of heaven. It describes the creation of mankind in detail, but the Bible doesn't actually go into detail about the creation of angels. Do you know why that is? The reason is actually really simple. The Bible isn't a story about angels or the devil. The, The story of the Bible is about mankind and the God who created him. Okay? The story is about a loving God bringing into being his crowning creative achievement, a creature made in his own image. You see, heaven and angels are not the focus of his creative activities. They're a party to it. 
The physical world and mankind are the focus of his creative activities. The physical universe is the crown of God's creation and mankind is the crown jewel of that creation. That's why the story focuses on mankind and not the angels and not the devil. God is concerned with telling the story of his most beloved part of creation. That is why the story is about mankind and his fall from grace and God's plan to restore him back. That's why the Bible doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking even about creation itself. I mean, think about this. All of creation, heavens, earth, spiritual beings, material beings are all discussed one chapter of the Bible. The history of all creation, one chapter of the Bible I guess when you talk about Adam and man, he gets another chapter, you know, in his creation. But there are lots to the part of this story that are just not told to us, right? There's lots in the Bible that, did, that, that the Bible doesn't talk about. How, how did the universe get so big? I don't know. It doesn't say, all right? Well, how did light get from 50 billion years from, from there to here so we can see it like it's in real time? I, I don't know. It doesn't say, How do you explain the fact that there are no human bones along with dinosaur? It doesn't say. How long did did God take to create the heavens? It it doesn't say. At what point did did God take energy and turn it into subatomic? It doesn't say. Okay? You see, God isn't concerned with explaining every little minute detail about every subject. God isn't concerned with us having a full understanding of quantum physics. That is not necessary for salvation. God is concerned with telling us the story of how he lovingly brought us into existence, gave us a choice, and then we use that choice to rebel against him, that we became condemned in our sin and how we were helpless to fix it on our own, and how God took it upon himself to rescue us. God is concerned with us knowing how to have a relationship with him. That's why he wrote the Bible. The story is about God and his glory. And it's about us, God's most beloved creation. And it's about God and his full glory coming to rescue us. That's why Jesus died. He died to rescue and restore creation. All of creation. In fact, Paul uh, tells us in Romans 8, 19 through 21, he says, For the creation awaits the eager longing. I mean, with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, the, the Bible is a story about God restoring his creation, the crowning achievement of God's creative works. And that's why... You know, the devil is working so hard to destroy creation and God's creatures. You see, if you can't hurt God, because you can't hurt God by attacking God. So what he's going to do is going to try to hurt God by hurting what God loves, his children. And I think you know what this means, because many of you said this before. You can do what you want to to me. You can say what you want to to me, but you do something to my family. It's a different story, right? That's. That's how we see it. It's the same thing. The reason why the Bible is about us and not the angels is the same reason why the enemy is trying to destroy us in creation. We are God's children. We are so loved and so valuable that God sent his son Jesus to suffer and die on a cross for us. And it's that value that we have to God that drives the enemy to want to destroy us. Because think about this. If somebody hurts you, it's one thing. Somebody hurts your family or somebody you love. It's worse, right? So the Bible is really the story about God's love for us. So we're not going to answer every single little question about how and when the heavens and angels were created. Suffice it to say, it seems as though that God created heaven first and the angels of heaven. And then he created the material universe, earth and all that's in it. Okay. Which means Satan was probably created before the earth was created. Now, it's important to understand that God, when he created Satan, he didn't create him him as the devil. He created him as an angel, just like every other angel. Which means, as we discussed, he's a non-physical being. He does not have a body like we think. And as an angel, Satan, or Lucifer, which was actually supposed to be his original name, which means um, son of the dawn uh, or um, light bearer or, 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 yeah, or day star, he was created 
just like other angels, to do what angels were supposed to do, which was to serve God. That is exactly what he was created for. See, angels are created to do the work that God has called them to do. Some angels are messengers, okay, and they, they bring messages. Other angels, you know, are God's attendants, and they attend his throne and, and, and protect his glory. Other angels are sent to minister to Christ when he was on earth. Some angels minister to people, providing protection and, and encouragement, right? Some angels will, will, will be instruments of God's judgment. We read that in the Bible, Angels were created to serve God and do what God has given them to do. And, and Satan, or Lucifer, was, was one of those angels. In fact, he was, he, was, he was created as one of the wisest and one of the most beautiful angels. And he was originally placed in a position of, of authority over the cherubim or the, or the, angel, uh, the sub-angels surrounding the throne of God. And we, and we read about this in Ezekiel 28. It, it, it's, it's a lament over the king of Tyre. Um, and even though that this is a lament... Um, it's still, we see the prophetic reference to the origin of Satan. It says, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, obviously this cannot be the king of Tyre, okay? Because um, the king of Tyre was like thousands of years after Eden. Okay, so this is a reference to the enemy. And it says, every precious stone was your covering, sardis, topaz, diamonds, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in the gold were settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. And notice what it says next. It says, you were anointed, or you, went, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You walked. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. You see, God created Lucifer to be a beautiful and wise angel. In fact, he was only one of three angels named in the entire Bible. The angel Michael who is known as the archangel, is the highest ranking and the most powerful angel of them all. He's the defender of Israel, and he actually contends with Satan over the body of Moses. There's an interesting story behind that. And then there was Gabriel, who was God's special messenger. He was the one that appeared to Mary and announced that, that she would bear um, a child. He was also the one that, that appeared to Zacharias and told him that he was going to be the father of, of John the Baptist. And, and, and this Gabriel was, was one that was the messenger that, that brought messages throughout the Bible to people. And then you have Lucifer, wise and beautiful, head of the cherubims that attend the, the throne of God. He's probably not the most powerful, but he was certainly in one of the most highest positions of honor in God's court. And then what happens? What happened to him that caused him to, to go from this exalted leader in God's court to a leader of rebellion against God himself? Well, let's take a look at the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, uh, beginning in verse 12. The answer is right there. Now, to understand this text, um, this particular prophecy is about the king of Babylon. Okay, This is how God works. But in this prophetic message about the king of Babylon, there's a reference to Satan. And it says, How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, or Lucifer, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground. You who laid low the nations. And then here it comes, it says, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will ascend to God's throne room. Above the angels. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the, uh, the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And then in Ezekiel twenty-eight seventeen, we read, Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. You see, the problem that Lucifer had was that being the most beautiful and wisest and most honored angel in all of creation and all of heaven wasn't enough for him. He wanted more. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to, to, to be on God's throne. He wanted his throne to be above God's throne. He wanted to replace God. In fact, uh, Dr. Elmer, Elmer Towns from Liberty University notes that, uh, that his desire of Satan was to take God's place. Lucifer's 
first attempt involved his ascent into the abode of God, right? And then, and Satan sought the authority of over all of the angels. And Satan wanted to govern all of heaven. And he wanted to be the boss of everything. And so he organized this coup, this rebellion against heaven. In Revelation 12, 3 and 4, we see a symbolic picture of this as it says, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars, which is a reference to heaven, to, to, I mean, to the angels, and cast them to the earth. Now, we know that from the context of this particular verse that, that he's talking about Satan here. The red dragon is Satan. In fact, in verse 9 we read, it says, The great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent. So anybody says to you, hey, the serpent in the garden wasn't uh, the devil. It, it is, okay? That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Satan incited one third of the angels of heaven into a rebellion against God because he wanted to replace God. He wanted to be like God, which is exactly what we hear. It's a theme that we hear in his words when he tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. It begins in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty. And remember, that serpent is the devil. The serpent was more crafty than any other, other beast of the field that the Lord, had, Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, You may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. You see, that's what this rebellion was all about. That's how it started. He wanted to be like God. He incited a third of the angels to follow along. And then he incited mankind to follow suit. That's the downfall of Satan, but it's also the strategy that he's used to get others to follow him. He wanted to be like God, and he appealed to our desire to be like God, because we do. Remember, we talked about we want to be in control. We don't want to let God be in control. We want to be in control. We want to be like God. Okay. And so he desires that same thing. But here's the thing. He knows he cannot be God. He cannot be like God. He's not all-powerful. He is not the creator. He cannot create. All he can do is destroy. And so what he's settling for is instead to tear down what God has created. He works to destroy creation. Now, a big question people ask is, when did this happen? All right? When did Lucifer rebel and become Satan the devil? I mean, you know, obviously, you know, he was created you know, an angel, but at some point he changed. So when did that happen? When did he become the devil? That's a really gigantic theological question. And there are lots of big theological answers. In fact, there are some people who say that he, when he was created soon after, it was like just moments after he rebelled against God. And there's some that say that, that uh, right after creation was completed, right, that he, you know, rebelled against God. And some people will say that somewhere in between there. And again, the Bible doesn't actually really specifically say when it happened. I mean, you can make arguments either way you want to from the Bible. I've seen all these positions, you know, backed up by Scripture. But the Bible isn't really actually clear about this because this isn't the story about the devil. It's a story about us in a relationship with God and his plan to redeem us. What I can firmly tell you, though, is obviously Satan's rebellion happened somewhere, right, before he tempted Eve. Okay? So somewhere between, between the point he was created and the point that he was in the Garden of Eden is when his rebellion happened. That's as much as I can tell you. But the facts are simply this. Satan was not created the devil. He was created as an angel before the creation of the world. He was an exalted angel with an important job. But because of pride, he decided that he wanted to replace God and started a rebellion against God. And one-third of the angels went with him. And what happens then is the Lucifer, the light bearer, became Satan, the adversary. And... Uh, and now that that's where he's from, 
What does the Bible say about his power and what does he do? How does Satan wage his war against creation? Well, the thing is that you have to understand is that this war is engaged. That, that we are fighting is not a physical war. It's a spiritual war. This fight is actually fought in the spiritual realm, which is heaven. Now, this is, again, a place that we're going to have to take what we know about our culturally induced theology. And we're going to have to, like, set that aside. Because cultural theology says the devil is right now at home in his headquarters, which is hell. And from there, in his office, okay, in hell, he dispatches his fallen angels as demons to do his bidding, okay? And although that the part about the demons, you know, and him dispatching them, you know, is true, okay, this activity does not take place in hell. Hell is not his headquarters. Hell is his prison that he is destined for. Okay, this war that is fought is fought in heavenly places. Paul says this in, in, in Ephesians six twelve. He says, if we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against the cosmic powers over the present darkness and against spiritual forces of darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's where the war is waged. Now, you might think, well, how can that, how that be? I mean, I thought heaven was like where angels were and like everybody wore white robes and, you know, they got a harp to play and there's lots of clouds and everybody's pretty real mellow and, you know, it's quiet and there's lots of rainbows and, you know, and it's really calm. Okay. Well, again, that's a a culturally induced picture of what heaven's supposed to be like. It's really not reality. Heaven is a place for spiritual beings to exist. Okay? That's where God interacts with the spiritual world. And heaven is a place where God's throne is. And Jesus is the actual only physical being in heaven. And he's seated at the right hand of God. But heaven is still a vast expanse. And this war wages in heavenly places. In fact, Satan is still able to come before God, which is probably going to blow your mind. But, but when we read about Zechariah uh, 3.1 where it says... Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has, who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Where do you think this took place? This didn't take place in hell. This took place in heaven. This is a spiritual reality. And what about the book of Job where we read, um, it says... Now there was a day when the sons of God, or the angels is what that's referring to, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered to the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Now you have to understand what you're reading here. Satan is able to come and stand before God, and God has a conversation with him. Okay? Where do you think this conversation is taking place? It is not taking place in hell. It's taking place in the heavenly places, as Paul talks about. And notice what Satan says here when, 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 when he's speaking to God and God asks him, from where have you come? Satan answered it and said to the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. You see, heaven and earth are not these two separate places separated by huge distances of sky. Heaven and earth are two different dimensions that are intersected with each other. You have a physical dimension, that's where we're confined to, and you have a spiritual dimension where spiritual beings exist, but they're able still to interact with the physical world. How else do you think demons can possess people? How else can the enemy tempt people? I mean, obviously he tempts people because he tempted Jesus. Okay? How is it that angels can come and declare messages to people and minister to people and protect them and provide for them? How is that possible? Heaven and earth are not separate. Heaven and earth are two separate dimensions that intersect. Now, this is important for us to understand because this knowledge helps us to understand how we, how the enemy can come and attack us and how we can learn to defend ourselves. Because think about this. Buying a nine millimeter handgun might protect you and help to protect you from that home invasion robber, but it's not going to protect you against Satan tempting you to lust. Okay. 
It's not going to protect you from the enemy encouraging you to be selfish. You learning jujitsu is not going to keep the devil from attacking you in your emotional weakness. You need to know how to fight the enemy where he exists. And in order to know that, you need to understand the battleground. And the battle may have physical consequences in our lives. But the actual battle is fought in the spiritual realm in the heavenly places, which means we need to use spiritual weapons to fight this fight, which means we're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks. But understand the devil isn't confined. Okay, we need to like unplug our minds from what culture has taught us. The devil is not confined to some subterranean abode. His office is in a place of fire and brimstone, right? He doesn't have like this little brimstone day planner on his desk. Okay? okay, he's able to move around and engage in warfare in heavenly places as well as the physical world. And because of that, and through his use of his vast demon army, he's able to influence. And actually, he's able to rule the world. In fact, he has been called the God of this world. Now understand, he's not a real God. He's a false God. But he's been labeled that because he has a huge amount of influence in the world today. Now, the next question is how do you, does he use his, his power? How does he do what he does? How does he accomplish his plan? How does he wage this warfare? Now, this is, this is a really, really big subject by itself that we can talk about. We can spend weeks and weeks and weeks and talk about it. But let me just share with you, just outline for you three basic ways that Satan wages war on creation. Three basic strategies that he uses. Number one, Satan wages war on creation by deceiving the nations. He deceives the nations. Revelation 20, verse 3. We are told that Satan will be thrown into the pit for a period of time so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Satan is the great deceiver. He's the deceiver of the world. He's able to deceive kings. He's able to deceive governments. He's able to deceive, you know, presidents. He's able to deceive them to all kinds of unspeakable atrocities. Just think about the, what's happened in the last 100 years. Okay? 1916 to 2016. What's been done at the hands of government in just the last 100 years? We've had world wars. Two. Okay? We've had genocides. Almost the extermination of the Jewish race. Famines. Terrorism. Coups. Like this last week. Nuclear, chemical, and biological weapon proliferation. We have the, the governments have given us the ability to destroy the entire world. Not to mention the systematic slaughter of 70 million people. As the U.S. government sanctioned the murders of 70 million unborn children since Roe versus Wade, since 1973. We've seen gulags, internment camps. We've seen concentration camps, death camps, all at the hands of governments. And now more and more governments, after the longest period of freedom in the history of the world, these governments are moving to, re, to, re, to restrict things like free speech and free trade and the freedom of religion. All the while, these governments are increasing their surveillance of everyday common Citizens, The enemy is deceiving the nations and he's leading the world further and further from God and closer and closer to destruction. And you don't have to be a theologian to see this. You don't have to be, you know, even a conspiracy theorist to see this. All right. It's plain to see that there's something happening in the world around us. That there's something sinister as at work. For every ounce of progress we seem to make, there seems to be an ounce of destruction and pain. I mean, a pound of uh, destruction and pain that follows. Satan is at work influencing the nation. He's influencing political affairs. Now, the second strategy um, that the enemy uses to wage war against us is he deceives the unsaved. He deceives and he blinds those who are not saved. In fact, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world, the enemy has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The enemy is going to do everything he can do to keep unsaved people unsaved. He wants to take as many people as he can to hell with him. And he has very specific tactics to do that. He has specific tactics to keep them blind from the truth of God because he is the great deceiver. And I'll just go over a couple of these tactics that he uses. One of the tactics that he uses is to snatch the, the seed, the, the good seed of God's word from unbelievers' hearts. 
Because that's what the word is compared to. It's, it's, it's a seed that when it's, when it's spoken, when it's, when it's read, that it's a seed that, that's broadcast out. And if it lands in the right place, that it will take root and it will grow and it will bear fruit. But Satan is at work to stop that. He will do whatever he can to keep the word of God from taking root in someone's life. He is there to create doubt. He, he, he causes people to be skeptic, skeptical. He, he attacks the church and the church's reputation. I mean, we all know people, we all know people who have heard the word of God and who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and they just have not responded to it. They've even rejected it. They just don't believe it. They refuse to believe it. Some people even run from it. They don't want to hear it. And every time the word is shared with them, the enemy just snatches it away. There are even some who profess to be Christians who still have not actually, you know, understood and received the word of God. They think that, that, that they have, but the devil has actually come and taken away the word from them. Because it's not even taking root in them. It's not bearing any fruit in them. You see, we're told in Matthew chapter 13, verse 19, that, that when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away. He snatches away what was sown in their hearts. This is one of the tactics the enemy uses. Another tactic is that he lulls believers in this false sense of peace, especially in the Western world, right, where we have so much affluence. There's, a sense, there's no sense of urgency because we live in a world where everything's really taken care of, right? There's no sense of urgency because we live you know, in a world where everything's really kind of done for us. It's taken care of. And so there's no sense of God's impending judgment, right? You can go sin today and then tomorrow's normal. There's no sense of reciprocity, right? There's no sense that, that, that we're coming to a place where God's wrath is going to be poured out on people, and so people don't, need to see, don't see a need to deal with the sin in their lives. They just can kind of go on sinning without thinking that anything's ever going to happen. Right? We're at this place in postmodern world you know, right now where right and wrong are really just defined by individuals. Right? What's right and wrong for you is okay for you. As long as you're okay with your moral code, then who cares what the Bible says? Who cares what the pastor says? You know, what he's preaching in the church? Right? Everything else is going to be fine anyway. So there's this false sense of peace. And then another tactic he, 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 is that he lays traps for the unwary. He says in Paul, um, he says in 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And then here's the point. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. See, the enemy has lots of snares to capture unbelievers. He can capture unbelievers with false ideologies, atheism and pluralism and inclusivism and even cults and other religions. He can capture them with sin and vice such as pornography and and sexual immorality and alcoholism and and drug addiction and greed and pride and vanity. Um, He can capture them with, 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 with culture, with music and art and media. There's lots of things that the, the enemy can use to set up for believers that keeps them from seeing the truth about God and their need for him. Another tactic is, is that he masquerades as an angel of lights. Remember, he's an angel, and so he knows how to play this part. He knows what it looks like, right? And guess what? He's been around a whole lot longer than we have, so he's going to be a little bit harder to detect. He knows how to disguise himself and his plans and even like can disguise bad things as making them look good. That's why so many modern cultural movements have adopted this stance that anything that's against what they're standing for is hate. Okay? And, and they do it for good reason, right? Because hate is bad, right? I don't want to hate. You don't want to hate, right? And so people, you know, so they get people to do what they want to do because the opposite of what they're doing is supposed to be hate. And so if you don't agree with a person's lifestyle choices, then automatically you're labeled as someone who hates them. That's what we're told. And so accepting these behaviors that, 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 that these people do is actually the opposite of hate. It's the loving thing to do. And so good, the good thing to do, the enlightened thing to do is to forget about sin and just accept whatever behavior people engage in out of love. The enemy is really crafty at reframing arguments so that, that sinful things and immoral things become good and wholesome and right and normal. 
Another tactic that the enemy uses, that he deceives sinners, is he mixes truth with error. This is where you get cults. Okay, every cult that claims to be Christian has a language and a culture and even rituals that sound authentic to a lot of unbelievers. Okay, and all these cults use words like savior and baptism and righteousness and the church and heaven. Right? And they will even say things like Christ died for our sins and you need to have faith right? before whatever truth there is. Whatever truth there is, they're com- combined with error. And it makes it unfit. Because think about this. If I were to like, I know you guys are hungry, but if I was to like go home right now and barbecue up some steaks for you guys, right? You know, one of them really big, nice. Okay. I'm teasing. All right. But what if I was to like cook a steak for you guys and, and, and like, so it was like 100% Angus beef and I used like just the, the best season. All right. It's like 99% that. And then I took a tiny, tiny bit of poison and told you it's some of this is poison. Would you eat it? Well, no, of course not. Because what happened is, is the whole thing is unfit now. It's, it's, it's deadly, right? It's the same principle. The enemy knows how to combine a little bit of error within the truth to make it seem like it's good and life-giving, but the end, it leads to death. Now, there's a lot of other tactics the enemy uses, but the point is the enemy deceives nations. He deceives unbelievers. And the third strategy the enemy uses to fight this war is he works tirelessly to defeat those who are saved. He tries to defeat us because we are God's instruments in this battle against the enemy here on earth. We are the tools that God is using to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are the instruments that God uses to share the hope of Jesus Christ with the world. And so the enemy is going to do whatever he has to to stop us. He's going to come after us. He's going to do everything in his power to discourage us. I mean, VBS begins tomorrow. Let me just tell you, okay? (laughs) He's been, he's been attacking Kim and I in an effort to discourage us. In fact, he's been attacking other people who've been volunteering for VBS as well and their families in an effort to discourage them, right? Discouragement's one of the ways that the enemy tries to defeat believers because if he can make you discouraged, okay, then you're not a very effective witness for God's goodness. He will also try to make believers stumble. In fact, last week, another pastor has fallen. A pastor who years ago started a church in his own home, grew it up into a membership of several thousand people. And this man has written a lot of books. He's done videos. He has helped thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And he was fired by his church that he started because it was discovered that he had a growing dependence on alcohol and that he wasn't able to break free. He actually needed to go into recovery. He was disqualified from ministry. And this is a common occurrence. Pastors and ministers get caught up in scandals all the time. Okay? Money, sex, alcoholism, addiction. Each of these things are claiming the spiritual lives of pastors. Right? And each time that happens, the church and pastors lose credibility in the eyes of the world. And make no mistake, it's not just pastors. It's people in who are everyday believers. Lots of Christians who, who, who love Jesus and attend church end up stumbling and falling into sin and the enemy baits them into sin. Maybe, you know, it's marital infidelity. Maybe it's greed or addiction. Maybe it's, it's, it's hate or unforgiveness or even pride. And when an unbeliever stumbles into sin, they lose their credibility to share the gospel because people around them are not going to hear what they have to say about sin and repentance and turning, you know, to God for forgiveness if they're wallowing in their sin. And what's worse, there actually are a number of Christians who have succumbed to sin and that they're right now living a life of sin, openly, flagrantly in sin, and they refuse to fix it. And then they go out and they try to share Jesus with their family and their friends. And they'll try to tell their friends, man, you need Jesus. All the while their friends are going, what are you talking about? You're partying every weekend like it's 1999, right? I mean, you, you older folks will remember that, right? So, okay. <laughs> Yeah. That was my only Prince reference ever. Okay. So just saying, that. but, the, but your friends are telling you like, you go to work, you know, and you go hide, you go take a nap. Right. And you pretend like you're working. You're lying to your boss. Right. I mean, you're sleeping with someone else's wife for crying out loud. And you're going to tell me I need Jesus. 
kind of credibility is there? The enemy will try to make us stumble by tempting us with sin. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.22, one of the easiest scriptures you'll ever remember, 2.2.2.2. All right, 2 Timothy 2.22. So flee, okay? Can't overemphasize this word enough. Run from, get away from, flee youthful passions. Those are temptations. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call the Lord as from a pure heart. See, the enemy is going to try to make you discouraged. He will try to make you stumble. And the enemy will also try to make you apathetic. This is the worst one. He will try to defeat us by making us apathetic. Because in this post-modern world, we don't want to be confrontational about sin. We don't want to be confrontational about the reality of hell. It's, It's all about, well, you believe what you believe. I'm going to believe what I'm going to believe. And as long as we don't really talk about it, then it's okay. All right? We live in a world where we value non-confrontationalism more than we value the eternal souls of people we say we love. We buy into this lie that, well, it's just, it's just rude for me to share my faith with someone. Or, you know, they're a good person. I mean, gosh, they're so nice and so funny. I just can't imagine that God wouldn't love and accept them. You know, they believe what they believe, and I believe what I believe. And and, and who am I to judge? I mean, who am I to tell them any differently? I mean, we lose our sense of urgency to help other people get saved. The enemy seeks to defeat us by making us apathetic when it comes to sharing the gospel. That's how he wages this war. Now, that's there's more (laughs) to this than just this. But as we wrap up today, let's, let's just review what we kind of covered today. Right. Today's one of those like really informational types of sermons. Satan began his existence as an angel, Lucifer. He was created before creation of the world. Sometime before he tempted Eve and his creation because of his pride, decided that he wanted to replace God. He incited one-third of the angels into rebellion of God. And, 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 this, and in this rebellion, it's raged until the present day. And the devil aims to try to hurt God by hurting the ones he loves, us, his creation. And so Satan wages war against us. And this began for us in the Garden of Eden. And this war, though it has physical consequences, this war is fought in in the heavenly realm. And Satan is not bound to hell. He's not some warden of hell. He is a fallen angel who still roams freely in the spiritual world. And he has access there, and he has access to the physical world as well. And his demon army works to deceive the nations, deceive unbelievers, and defeat and make us useless, those of us who follow Christ. That's who our enemy is. He's not a myth. He's not a figment of our imagination, but he's not God's equal. He is certainly powerful, but he's not all-powerful. He is wise and intelligent, but he is not all-knowing. He has a huge army that does his bidding, but he is not ever-present. He is certainly formidable, but he has already been defeated nonetheless. And soon he will be judged and punished for eternity. Now, with all that and with all that's happened in the world around us, what do we do? I I mean, what do we do with this? Well, really, the next part of our series, we're going to actually talk about um, how we engage the enemy in the battle. What do we do? The practical things that we do to take the fight to the enemy. How do we defend ourselves? But as for today, you know, and as for this week, what we need to do is we just need to get really to the basics. We just need to get really, really simple. And, and, and we need to begin to use the most underutilized tool that Christians have in this war. And that is prayer. We need to pray. And I know that sounds really simple, but it's simple because it's the truth. I'm serious. Because if there's something we Christians are not doing enough of, we're not praying enough. We're not praying enough for our families. We're not praying enough for our friends. We're not praying enough for our community. We're not praying enough for our country. We're not praying enough for this world. So before we talk about the other things that we can do to fight the enemy, we need to get down on our knees and do the basic things and become the prayer warrior that God is calling us to be. And so that's your homework this week. And and here's the thing. I don't want you to make excuses. I'm just, there's no excuses here. There's no, I just didn't have enough. 
just don't allow yourself to go there. Whatever time you have, get down on your knees this week and pray. And, and if you don't know what to pray for, let me tell you, pray for me. Okay? I, I need your prayers. Okay? I need people praying for me so that the enemy doesn't discourage me because he tries all the time. Okay? I, I need your prayers because I don't want him to cause me to stumble because he's always tempting me. Okay? I need your prayers because, because I don't want to become apathetic because it's really easy to kind of get really busy doing other things where I don't actually like get out and share the gospel with other people. I'll take all the prayers I can get. You can also pray for my wife, Kim. Okay? She needs your prayers. I mean, I'm telling you, like, VBS ramps up and things just get tougher for her, okay? And, and, and pray for the VBS volunteers because I'm just telling you the enemy's coming against them. I mean, in, I mean you can talk, talk to many of them. They'll tell you the stories, what's been happening this week in the last two weeks, right? right? Pray that, that, that for, for the kids of this VBS, right? Pray that they would come to know Christ. Pray for your family. Pray for your community. Pray for the men and women who are serving in the military right now. Pray for Devin Ward, Right? Pray for the families, the police officers who were shot this morning in Baton Rouge. Right? Pray for, for your country. Pray for the victims of Nice. All right? And pray for, for the situation that's been happening in Turkey, this, this, this political coup. This week, take some time and get down on your knees and take the, your, the fight to the enemy. Get down on your knees and become the prayer warriors that God's calling you to be. Get down on your knees before the God who loves you and pray. In fact, let me, let me pray for you. Pray for you. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the fact that we have the privilege to be able to come before you. That Jesus sacrificed himself so that the veil between you and me is torn. That I can come boldly before the throne of grace, as your word says. That I can come to you and talk to you. Help us, Lord God, to take advantage of this privilege and this tool that you've given us in this fight against the enemy. Help us to pray for one another. Help us to love one another through prayer. Help us to minister to each other through prayer. There's so many people that are hurting and, and, and so many people that, that, that are broken. And, and there are things we just can't do for them. We can't fix their problems. We can't, we can't give them enough money to, to, to help them out. We can't, we can't do enough stuff physically for them. But we can certainly pray for them. And Lord, this world is, you know, we're standing here watching it happen. We're watching the world commit suicide. We're watching our country spiritually commit suicide as it embraces secularism. We're watching our community destroy itself with drug addiction. We're watching families destroy themselves because of their infidelity. We're watching whole groups of generations of people destroy themselves because of pornography. We're watching our country destroy an entire generation of people who've been lost, 70 million people. So Lord, help us to remember to pray. Help us to get on our knees to pray to you. Help us to be motivated to spend time with you. Help us to take this privilege that you've given us and use it as a, for your glory and use it as a weapon against the enemy. I pray your protection right now over these people. I pray your protection right now over the families in this congregation. I pray your protection over right now the, the, the workers of VBS, Lord, that you'd bind the enemy completely away from them, that you would help them to continue on. And when they feel discouraged, that you would encourage them on. And when they feel tempted to fall, Lord, that you would lift them up. Lord, and when they feel apathetic, Lord, that you would inspire them to go share the word of God with somebody, Lord. And I pray your protection on those who are not here. And I pray, Father, that you would just you would generate in this congregation the people that are so passionate for you that not only would they pray, for you, pray to you, they would get up and they'd go out in the world and they would storm the gates of hell, sharing the hope of Jesus Christ with the world. I pray, Lord, for that. I pray, Lord God, that you would just be glorified in our midst. And I pray, Lord God, that First Baptist Church would stand in the darkness as a beacon of hope as we continue to be firm, to 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 walk in both grace and truth, that we're going to love with an unconditional love, but we're going to tell people the truth. 
And I pray, Father, that uh, you would help us to do that this week. I pray for all of our hearts to be moved to prayer all week long. And I pray for you to be glorified today, this week at Vacation Bible School. We love you. We thank you and we pray to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.